Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, on our last episode, I was able to give you some final thoughts on the classic fable Animal Farm by George Orwell. Now, if you're just tuning in today, we did interrupt our series on 1984, and we took a a short trip to Animal Farm to support the book club sponsored for our youth attending our summer education program. Now, this was obviously a great benefit to our campers, but as I said in my last program, it was a really good benefit to me. And actually, I think it's going to help us with this program today even better. So for today's program, I want to get back into our discussion of 1984. Now, there is yet much to discuss in this prescient book. I still hear many newscasters talk about how Orwellian our society has become, and that's just in the last couple of days, really. So this book is still on the minds of people, and it appears that many people are reading it. In fact, someone told me recently that it's hard to find a copy of 1984 in a bookstore because so many people are buying it, and uh, it's selling out of the bookstore. So if you haven't picked this book up, well, you better get with it, because everyone else is. So uh, I I really uh, think that you will benefit by reading this book. Now, to help me do this today, with me in the studio today is Grant Turgeon. So welcome back, Grant. Thanks a lot. I'm really happy to, to have you here. Unfortunately, due to other commitments, James Brandon could not be with us today. And uh, we are back in school. He's back teaching high school, and we're back at college. So uh, we can uh, we can forgive him for not being <laughs> here today. All right. So, Grant, on our last 1984 podcast, we did have the women's panel in. And, of course, uh, with the women's panel, we uh, we discussed the relationship between Winston Smith and Julia. That's that's totally a, a, a woman's thing. So, uh, but today, what I want to do is let's uh, begin to focus on the book within the book. And, uh, you know, the title of the book in the book is The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein. Now, I, I just maybe, just let me make a few comments before I turn it over to you. One, one good thing about having Grant and James in uh, with me is I don't have to work as hard, but now I'm going to have to work hard today. So uh, the, the, the point is, I think it's a genius move in terms of writing on Orwell's part because uh, I remember reading the first book. I was thinking, well, when's he going to get into socialism? How's he going to get into socialism? How's he going to explain what he really thinks about it? And so, so he writes this, uh, this uh, book on, really, it's, it's based on English socialism, what he was really going after. But uh, and then he makes up the character Emmanuel Goldstein, and of course, uh, uh, you know Goldstein. They have the, the what the two minutes of hate, and everybody sees him, and everybody hates him, and and all that, and and uh, finally, uh, you know O'Brien, you know works it out to manipulate him even more and make sure he gets Goldstein's book. So so this is pretty pretty interesting. 
But it does refer to uh, to Ingsoc. I mean, uh, if you look at what he's talking about here, and Ingsoc, that's I-N-G-S-O-C, or English socialism. And so, so that's what it's really telling us about uh, really what he, what he hates about English socialism. And, and of course, if you haven't listened to the animal farm, pro, animal farm programs, go back and listen to those because I really think Animal Farm will help you understand Goldstein's book a lot better. And I, I think it helped me understand it. But uh, I think maybe one, one comment I'd make about Orwell is he really was his own kind of socialist. And uh, uh, his book, Animal Farm, is a direct disagreement with what the English socialists were doing. They wanted to have Soviet-style communism. And uh, remember, he, were, he wrote Animal Farm first, and then he wrote this one. And this is actually a more graphic description of what happens with socialism. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, for uh, any parents out there that have older teens that want to read it, you need to read it with them because there are some really graphic things about it that uh, actually keep me awake at night too. <laughs> so so you have to be careful. I think it's a it, it should, if you're going to uh, allow a teen to read 1984 it should be a parental uh, parent and child effort. So um but essentially uh, again with this he's he's really trying to explain uh the kind of socialism he does not like. And so uh um uh when when he was uh, at the end of World War II and just after, uh, he knew that the English wanted a Soviet-style uh, collectivism, and uh, be, you know, based on what Stalin uh, Stalin had done, you know, how he murdered his own people, he knew it just wasn't good. So uh, so that's uh, that's all I want to say to this point. So uh, let, let's start talking about uh, what we have here, just just in the middle of Book Two where he talks just briefly about chapter one, ignorance is strength. Well, so. it's it's really great that you did pick Animal Farm in 1984 because we are seeing actual fulfillments of those books all the time, especially right now in America in an election year. And also the Democratic National Convention is this week, so you're actually seeing a lot of the principles in these books on display. And I thought just going through the book within the book in 1984 – it's just incredible how he really did nail every detail of what socialism really is to the point that it's kind of confusing that he could even call himself a socialist in any way right. because he so brilliantly expounded on all the evils of that system. Yeah, I, I think I think when uh, if you really read his, uh, let's say, Michael Sheldon's uh, biography of him is uh, – you know, there was a kindness to George Orwell, and I think I think his brand of socialism. He really was offended by the class system in England, where if you were in the lower class, you could never get above it. And uh, you know, he spent a lot of time working with the poor, and I think I, I think he he had more of a kind socialism where you you know you help people that were poor, but you help them work out of it. You know, it, it wasn't like you wanted to. It's, this isn't not like. Uh, uh, you know, Goldstein's <laughs> oligarchical collectivism. <laughs> yes, it did seem like he had benevolent motives for right. his ideal form of government. Like, 
how maybe the rich in society would by their own choice maybe help right. the downtrodden not necessarily be forced to and have all their money stolen like it really was an idealistic form and probably deep down he knew that it couldn't be implemented in real life because he did know history he did see that every time someone did try to implement socialism they became tyrannical they became power hungry and they ended up just crushing the lowliest of society even worse than they had ever been crushed before right and i i think uh uh for everybody out there listening the reason why this book is so important is what we're really seeing, you know, with the, uh, it's really, I mean, the Democratic Party isn't even hiding it anymore. They're definitely left. And they're proud they're left. And essentially what they want is they want to grab power and they're going to do any, anything they can. And it, it doesn't matter what they do. They, they want to get power. But everybody out there listening, I know I, I turned it on for the first night, and I couldn't get past the first. <laughs> I just thought, I mean, I knew I was being lied to immediately. I mean, it's so clear. But, but then when you, uh, when you see how some of the news media is responding to it, they were just like, and I don't want to bring up names because I don't want to be critical of, of uh, you know, everybody. It's not, that I'm not, it's not that I'm not afraid to say anything. It's just I'm afraid of saying too much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm sorry, but Michelle Obama was lying from the from the minute she started. And then all the other female commentators out there were just like in La La Land, like clapping their hands and saying how absolutely exciting it was. When when, you know, our first lady now, no one would even give her a hearing. And she's out there helping people and and uh you know, the first thing she said that, uh, well, now there's this new conspiracy that they're going to destroy the mail system so you can't vote. I mean, I said, okay, that's it. I've, I've seen enough of the Democratic convention right now. So I also turned it on only on Monday night for the first night, and it was just absolutely painful to watch right. because, right. like you said, Mrs. Obama was just so obsessed with this victimhood mentality, and it's not just her. It's really the whole entire radical left that's the way that they operate where they do get people convinced that they're all being victimized that they have no control over how their lives work right. and it's amazing because in 1984 george orwell talks about the high the middle and the low the three different right. classes right. and how the ones in the middle the ones currently not in power to try to take the highest position will get the low on their side and promise them all these benefits and say, look, we're going to bring you the prosperity and the peace and the right. happiness you've always wanted, but you just have to help us supplant those on the highest level. And then as soon as the middle takes the highest level, they push the people on the low level back down to where they already were. They don't actually bring them up right. to the top with them. And, right. and it's exactly the way that Democrats manipulate minorities and the poor in this country. Every time there's another election, that's why we're hearing about it right now. It's like all the racial di division is exacerbated in the way that they talk. They co constantly remind us about supposed inequities in the system and how the whole system is against certain groups of people. But then you'll see it as soon as this election year is over, it'll die down very quickly. Oh, yeah. They won't even talk about it until another four years from now. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, the, the thing I think it's interesting that, um, and I'm right here just at the very beginning 
of it. Chapter one is called Ignorance is Strength. And essentially, when, when you read through this, you, be, you come to the understanding that the goal of socialism, and I, I'm talking about Soviet-style you know, socialism or even uh, communism, collectivism can, uh, you know, socialism can have collectivism. Communism also has collectivism. There, there's probably some different aspects to it. But I, but I think it's interesting where they're talking about ignorance is strength. And they, they really do work hard to keep people ignorant and and it's those people like you just said those people are the ones that are backing them except there every now and then you have a few and and the, the one uh and, and again um you know uh, we, we do have to have I, th- I think a certain measure of respect certainly for well certainly for president trump um and and those that are in office and uh the the thing is, I don't want to make this program. A, this is a literature program. I don't want to necessarily make it a diatribe. But I remember that the the one black uh, commentator that was interviewing, you know, Vice President Biden, and uh, you know, they were getting into you know, somewhat of a discussion about the difference between him and and uh, President Trump. And you know, Joe Biden said to him, "Come on, if you don't vote for me, you're not black." Right. No. Now that commentator did not accept that, you know. But 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 yet, look at all the other people, and there's thousands of them that are accepting comments like that. And so so, that ignorance is whose strength? It's, <laughs> it's the it's strength the of the rulers. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so so you know the goal of socialism. The way the way I look at this first chapter where it talks about ignorance is strength, the goal is to keep the high class in power. That's the goal. It's not to help the poor or the proles. No, and it really is to basically almost annihilate them mentally. It's it's right. to really just crush their ability to think independently, to have unique thoughts, to even practice logic and critical thinking and reasoning in any way at all. I mean, there's there's parts of the book talking about how the party members in Oceania have to be credulous and ignorant fanatics whose prevailing moods are fear, hatred, adulation, and orgiastic triumph. It talks about having a mentality appropriate to a state of war. But then also it talks about those who are below the party level, the proles, they're pretty much irrelevant to the party because they're no longer even a threat. It doesn't even matter what those people think because they know nothing about history. They don't even know enough to realize they're being oppressed in the first place. So they have no motivation to actually try to overthrow the party. The proles are 85% of the population. So like 250 plus million out of the 300 million at, at least. And the the party has no fear of them whatsoever because they have no intellect. There's right. no rebellion because there's there's going to be no wrong thoughts in their minds at all. Right. Just I just wanted to read one comment about uh, the, the whole idea about the you know um, if you really look at what where he's talking there about uh, you know um, Eurasia, Oceania, and East Asia. You know it, those are notice he keeps it into the, the three class system. And so, so he's dealing with the three classes. Obviously, Oceania would be the high. You know, they have that best ideology. You know, East Asia would be more, um, not, not East Asia, but Eurasia would be like Russian Bolshevism. You know, and then, then I, I liked how I, I got on one line and how one person or, or one, uh, um, you know, uh, 
website I got on talked about East Asia, where they had the death wish. <laughs> you know, they just they just die. But 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 the thing is, on page one sixty five of my book, um, you know, it, it's it's a, this is uh, if if you notice that that when uh, he starts reading the book is Winston reads parts of chapter one, then he then he breaks, and then he goes he flips he flips. To chapter three, you notice he never discusses chapter two, and I'm going, wait, what happened to chapter two? You know, <laughs> and so, so, but, but, but I think um, if we go back to a later, I mean, obviously later in the page after he wakes Julia up, he goes back to uh, you know to chapter one, but, but the point is he talks about war, war is peace, and these are all slogans of the party, and of course you know. Um, uh, Joe Biden believes that slogans are really great, you know. And but it's that ideology. It's like this is what promotes the ideology. These slogans they get people into the slogans, but there's no substance to any of it. Right. It's amazing how 1984, the book, within the book in 1984, lays out all of these obvious contradictions. The fact that, like he's saying here, if if war is perpetual, it it pretty much is the same as peace like nothing's going to change right. their lives are going to be the same whether they're in constant war or constant peace the lives of the people are pretty much the same they're just as miserable either way the only difference is if there were actually peace there wouldn't be the occasional bomb falling out of the sky right. to hit them so right. that's why they come to the conclusion that war is peace because in their everyday lives the proles don't even hardly remember that there's a war going on anymore right which That's is right. it's just incredible. So all these slogans end up becoming true, even though they're really not. They don't make any sense logically, but if you look at the results, they, they do kind of make sense. Right, right. Well, this is the bottom of page 165. It says, to understand the nature of the present war, for in spite of the regrouping which occurs every few years, it's always the same war. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's never, nothing ever changes. One must realize in the first place that it is impossible for it to be decisive. And why is it po impossible for it to be decisive? Is the, It's the parties controlling everything. It's controlling the news about it. You know, it's it's controlling the advance. And of course, uh, we'll get into, uh, you know, double think even a little bit, you know, before this is over. Uh, it said, but none of the three super states could be definitely conquered even by the other two in combination. They are too evenly matched, and their natural defenses are too formidable. Eurasia is protected by its vast land space, Oceania by the width of the Atlantic and Pacific, and East Asia by the fecundity and industriousness of, it, of its inhabitants. Secondly, there is no longer, in a material sense, anything to fight about. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so you can see that... that, that uh, Orwell is saying, this is what socialism is going to do. You know, it's, it's, it's going to keep certain things going just to keep people, what, confused and ignorant. That's what it's all about. Right. So in the book 1984, like you said, there are those three world ruling empires. And the fact that they are constantly at war, but nothing changes, it just shows there's a reason. There's, a actual, there's an actual reason why nothing is ever changing in these wars. Because the parties in charge of these three empires have too much to lose. So they never strike 
at the heart of their enemies. They're always fighting on the fringes, on the boundaries of the enemies. They all have so much power, so much control. All they care about is staying at the top of their respective societies that they're not going to actually try a risky war right. maneuver. No. They just want to maintain the status quo, which is really a hierarchy worse than any type of system they've ever condemned in the past. Yeah. Like they, they talk about equality, but they have the, the social classes so entrenched that you never have a chance of moving up. No, no. There's another, I think there's another good quote about this. This is uh, in my book is page 167 for all of you out there listening. Now, each book you get, each different version will be different pages. But this is, listen to this. It says, the primary aim of modern warfare in accordance with the principles of doublethink now, doublethink is you can hold conflicting opinions in your mind, two conflicting <laughs> at the same time. It says this aim is simultaneously recognized and not recognized by the directing brains of the inner party. It is to use up the products of the machine without raising the general standard of living. Ever since the end of the 19th century, the problem of what to do with surplus of consumption of goods has been latent in industrial society. And so, so the, the whole idea behind the war, the warfare, is, you know, to, to uh, you know, control the consumption of goods. And so, so the, the point is, as it even says later in this chapter, is they limit what goods people can have. And so, so in other words, they're suffering privation, and then every now and then they'll give them a little extra, and they think, wow, this is so exciting. <laughs> this is really good. And it's not good. Right. It's, it's amazing. Like It's deceit. The logic talked about in the book within the book, just how it really it makes the most sense for them to purposely deprive the people of a comfortable lifestyle, to deprive them of education that would show them how wretched the way they're living really is because that way they won't even rebel. But you just you just keep them low. You keep them basically in the dust at all times. And they figured out that the best way to do that would be to burn up all the surplus in constant war. So they're building these floating fortresses on the seas and then those get stripped down and another one gets built. So all the surplus, all the money and the manpower goes into building these things. And none of the people actually see any benefit whatsoever in what the nation is producing. So they're getting no fruits of their labor, which right. is really against what God would teach. Right, right. The, the, the thing is, is it, you really have to read this, though, and study it. I, I know that uh, when I first read through this, this uh, Goldstein book, I thought, what, what are they talking about? But then after I read Animal Farm, <laughs> I began to understand it. Top of page 169, it still talks about it. It says, in the long run, a hierarchical, a hierarchical society was only possible on the basis of poverty and ignorance. To return to the agricultural past as, something, as some thinkers about the beginning of the 20th century dreamed of doing was not a practical solution. It conflicted with the tendency toward mechanization which had become quasi-instinctive throughout most of the world, and moreover, any country which remained industrially backward was helpless in a military sense and was bound to be dominated directly or indirectly by its more advanced rivals. And so, so you know, it, when you have an oligarchy, that's what they want. They want to keep people poor. 
they want to keep people, well, not productive. And you know, that, that, that's really, is in some ways, if you think about it, and I, I don't think this is what, certainly what the government of the United States wanted, but giving people all the stimulus money, what has it done? It hasn't encouraged them to go back to work. People still don't want to go back to work. Right. They're just, waiting for the next stimulus package. Just looking to make people dependent and really not very useful to society. And then at that point, they're not really a threat anymore. Just yeah. like just like the way that the party members in the book look at the proles. They're not even a threat because they're dependent on the government. They're not going to rebel if they need the government right. to survive. I mean, it, there is a like a brilliant but sadistic method to all the all the madness there and it's interesting like the book within the book also talks about how you can only really allow thought in a couple different areas so the whole point of english socialism is to eliminate thought eliminate critical thinking but at the same time you do have to make you do at least have to try to make military advancements so that you don't get wiped out by the other two world empires you do at least have to try to make advancements in science so that you can develop weapons or or poisons or anything that really doesn't benefit the lives of everyday people it's just to make sure that you don't get conquered by another ruling power that will take away all of your power right i I think uh you know um of course mr stephen flurry he showed that really pretty pretty well uh, pretty this this kind of this fact on the the trump a daily today how how ignorant people really are of facts right now and this, this is what you were just saying is that everybody should be out there you know really really searching i mean they they've got so much control over us now and you know the whole idea of masks uh you know right now in edmond every store you go into you have to wear a mask you know but I've been in some stores, and there's other people in there who don't have masks on. You know, I'm 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 obedient. You know, I <laughs> I, I did what they said. Did they I, mandate that recently? Yeah, and they, oh, wow. yeah. It's just it's just for three more weeks, I think. Okay. You know, so so but but the but the point is, um, you know, it it not everyone will do it. You know, the, certainly that you know, uh, Winston and Julia when they show up at O'Brien's, he turns the telescreen off. He gives them, uh, you know, good wine. He, gets, he has good coffee. And they're going, what? How do you get that? You know? <laughs> and so, so uh, um, but, but, but the, thing, the thing is, I, I think um, what, what, where Orwell just really does a great job here is, is he's showing, you know, how socialism hates capitalism. And and how how much do we hear on the news today how bad capitalism is? All the time. Yeah. You know, it's it's like you're you're white racist, you're capitalist, and and even like the the whole idea. People are just, you know, I was I was talking to uh, you know a relative. I'm not going to say who it was, and you know, I I look at what you know again, uh, you know, I think it's. I think Fauci has even admitted himself. Dr. Fauci has admitted he's made some mistakes. President Trump has said he's made mistakes, you know. And when I was down in Edmond the other day, I was wearing a mask. I had to go to the chiropractor, and he's got his mask on. And, and I said, you hate that? And he said, yeah, I just have to do it because, you know, I can't keep my, my office open if I don't do it. 
And I said, well, do you mind if I pull mine down while I'm in here? He said, no, go ahead, pull it down. He said, because, you know, Harvard, Harvard just came out and said that, that uh, masks are only 3% effective. And he said, you know what that means, don't you? And I said, well, I'm not a real good mathematician. What does it mean? He says, it means that they're 90%, 97% <laughs> ineffective. Right. And he said, but everybody's going after Fauci. And a relative told me, I love Fauci. You know, and I, and I just, I didn't say a word. Because, again, I don't want to get into these big political arguments. But, but anyway, it, it, is, uh, it is amazing, I think, what's in, what is in this book. Um, <clears throat> another quote here, just to, just to keep moving on. And this is still related to, um, let's say, capitalism or socialism. And one of the problems that the party had was, and this is like the middle of page 169 for me, it says, the problem was how to keep the wheels of industry turning without increasing the real wealth of the world. <laughs> Goods must be produced, but they need not be distributed. And in practice, the only way of achieving this was by continuous warfare. So so you, can you imagine Winston Smith? And, and again, Orwell makes him like a living character. He really does. And there he's looking out, you know, he and Julia are in their little apartment. He's looking out at the pearls. The pearl wife is singing. She's got the little children around. You know, they get their beer. They're happy. He's not happy. And he's not an inter-party member, but he's a party member. He's miserable. Right. He has no freedom at all because he's always being watched he actually knows the behind the scenes working of all the lies being told all of the all of the torture being carried out by the thought police and the ministry of love he knows how evil it is the proles are just sort of in blissful ignorance they are drudging through everyday life too much to care about the corruption of the system really they're they're really too downtrodden to worry about anything else except for daily survival but Winston's being watched all the time so he actually has a little bit more in terms of physical blessings even though it's very limited for him too but he's way worse off mentally and emotionally than any of the proles because he just has no privacy no rights at least the proles are left to themselves a little bit right it's kind of like the the shocking thing the shocking thing for him is when he tries to keep a journal and he has to hide it because he can't have any history of himself. Not, no history. Well, as you might suspect, guess what? <laughs> we've, we've run out of time for today's program, but that doesn't mean anything to us because there's another program coming. So, uh, again, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's program, but next time um, we will uh, finish our discussion, or maybe I should say try to finish our discussion of book two. <laughs> you can buy 1984 at Amazon.com. You can find a copy in your local bookstore. Of course, you can also check your local library. Now, please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. And you can also follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. And you can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. Now, that Facebook page, I have my new assistant, and he is working to get that Facebook page briefed up a little bit, so uh, you'll be able to really enjoy that once it's done. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.